0: hope for in this study is that really you sense the pulse of what I believe Solomon is trying to express. And yes, when I say that, I'm coming out right and saying I believe Solomon was the author of this book, Um, as we'll discuss uh, more next week on the authorship and the audience. um, I do believe that this is a single work, not written by multiple authors, as some might suggest, Uh, I do believe that this was written during Solomon's time, not later, as some might suggest. And I believe that there is a argument being presented here by Solomon for us and for our benefit, mostly not only for our personal edification and understanding of who we are in relationship uh, structure-wise to as being creatures made by God, so the creature and creator distinction, but also that we would be equipped uh, for every good work and we'd be prepared to give an answer to those for the hope that lies within us. Apologetically speaking, I believe that um, for those who might be familiar with different apologetic approaches, this is probably one of the most powerful presuppositional arguments given to us coherently from the Scriptures. And what do I mean by presuppositional? You're not familiar with Van Til or Greg Bonson or John Frame's work on presuppositional apologetics and its development. Uh, it's ideal, the ideal behind it is to attack and address the very fundamental foundation of what one believes. What are their presuppositions? What are they presupposing about themselves, about reality, and about uh, you know this world, about God, about the Word of God, and so on. So we're not evidentialists here. Uh, some might be disappointed in hearing that. In the sense of that we need to provide proofs for God's existence, we believe that all of God's, ex- all of who we are in our existence and all of the created order is sufficient evidence enough to point to a creator, as Paul would say in Romans chapter one. So we're not trying to provide arguments either in the classical sense. Where uh, I don't think that's what Solomon is doing here. So I'm not saying that when I talk about an apologetic approach. He's not making and building an argument. Uh, in the case for Christ or the existence of God, this is obviously an Old Testament uh, piece of literature, and it's in the wisdom writings. And it is for our wisdom that it was written. And so you'll notice today uh, there were the the script the, uh, op- the for instance the call to worship. The call to worship specifically chosen, and some gave me some pushback like, "Man, that long of one, right? Are you sure? Uh, do you want to do this like in response?" No, I'll read the whole thing. Why are you doing that one? Shouldn't we be doing like a call to praise and worship? Uh, Yeah, absolutely. That one really isn't. That's kind of more of a lament, right? Yeah, no, it's definitely, but it's also a a format of praise and worship. It's an acknowledgement of the creator creature distinction. Why pick Job as our scripture reading? If you notice in conjunction with what we're about to read today, Job is identifying as he's gone through an incredibly challenging and difficult experience. And for those who haven't read Job, I encourage you to. Job had everything stripped away from him physically, materially. Job had his family stripped away from him. And then his health attacked. Brought to basically inches from death. And here he has his friends surrounding him trying to tell him, hey, there's probably something you did wrong that you need to repent of. There's, something, there's an obvious issue that God has with you. This is why you're going through what you're going through. And Job is lamenting about his position, and what does he say? He, he is having a, a discussion with his friends talking about the creator, creature, distinction. He's discussing who we are and what we are, why we've been appointed to this life. There are deep questions being asked here, and the wisdom literature particularly seeks to answer those things. You will not have the context for the wisdom literature unless you understand Genesis chapter one through three. You do not understand exactly what they're driving at. Jesus said, on the, uh, uh, after meeting with the men on the road to Emmaus, as he met with the men afterwards, he said that all the scriptures, the law, the writings, and the prophets point to him. These writings, which are the wisdom literature, should, in some way, shape, or form, point us to Christ, give us a better recognition of who Christ is. It says that, Paul says that Jesus is the treasure of all wisdom and knowledge. Proverbs one through eight, or Proverbs one through eight, is really a, a summary of what I believe. Uh, Solomon is trying to drive at, and at the end of uh, Proverbs eight, we've read it in the past, and I share it often. It says that if those who the wisdom was with God in the beginning, and through wisdom all things were created. John in his gospel expresses something very similar about Jesus, says the divine logos incarnate, made flesh, and dwelled among us. And then Paul in Colossians says that all things were made through him, by him, to him, and for him. It says that in Romans as well. So we're dealing with the wisdom of Christ. And there's something that Jesus, out of Ecclesiastes through Solomon, wants to teach us uh, and deliver to us. So it does us well to pay close attention to what Solomon says. Now I believe this is both, again, fundamental foundation for our sanctification. It's to our benefit that we understand these things. But also, too, what I'd like to do is equip you for the work of ministry that when you leave from here, and when you are engaging with unbelief, that you have a very firm foundation in what Solomon, I believe, is driving at. And it's something Job expresses and it's something that the Proverbs express. And I'll try to show and demonstrate how those two relate to one another. So before we enter in uh, to this time of study together, let's open up with prayer and ask the Lord for help. Please bow your heads with me. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we love You so much. We love what Jesus Christ accomplished for us on the cross. The fact that we could even be here today and worship you and appreciate the reality of where we live. Our, as, you, as Paul says, our appointed place, time, place, and habitation. The fact that we are in this point in history. Being able to walk through life in the way we do in the, the small glimpse, the speck in the greater history. The speck in the greater universe that we are uh, part of your part of your uh, divine will being orchestrated providentially throughout history that we have your will conveyed to us as Jonathan explained this morning from your word and that will is expressed very clearly and although there are things that might be beyond our comprehension about that will and how you're going to carry it out this particular book has been given to us so that we have we properly place ourselves before you in the context that you've placed us in. So Lord, I pray that you would bless your people here today. And for those who are not among the fold, that you would use this as an opportunity to draw them to yourself. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So today's text, Ecclesiastes 1, 1 through 1-2. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, this is going to be a really long study. <laughs> it's only doing two verses today. Here we go. The words of the preacher, the son of David... King in Jerusalem, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That's quite the way to start a text, would you agree? Vanity. Why, why in the world would someone who is trying to encourage them to listen to him, right? The Keheleth, the, uh, the preacher, the assembler of people, gather, gather, and listen to what the preacher has to say. He's about to explain to you that all is vain. All is a mere breath, a meaningless vapor. all everything that you do is vain. How in the world would that be an encouragement to anyone who's about to sit underneath the preacher and listen to what he has to say? Jeremy, why in the world would you have chosen this book? We need some blessings, bro. Like come on, man, we don't need to be we don't need Deb, any more Debbie Downer messages. Um, no, we need it. We need it for artification to properly place us, to give us perspective. I think the entire book, if I could summarize uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, is a matter of perspective. That unless you have this perspective, nothing will bring you joy. Nothing. And we see that in the world. And I hope that I do a fair job today in just expressing what I think Solomon and why he would have written such a book, why he would have said that. The theme of the book is really just life under the sun. One of the most common themes that you'll find throughout this book, and we'll try to um, earmark, pinpoint every time he makes the usage of life under the sun. And we'll say, well, what does that mean in relationship to what he just shared? What does that mean in relationship to what he just shared? It's life under the sun where vanity reigns amid two people groups. Vanity reigns amid two people groups. Who are those people groups? God-fearers and the wicked. Those are the two groups that you're going to hear about the most. So when you think about the theme, it's "Life Under the Sun," where vanity reigns amid two people groups, some Godfears and some wicked. Chavel," or Chevel," um, is used to provide a juxtaposition or an antithesis for us. He uses it multiple times throughout this book. He uses it more times in, in Ecclesiastes than it's ever used in any other book combined. And what is he trying to show? He said there's in some cases profit, advantage, and gain. Um, Sometimes there's things that count and actually matter. Um, There's something that should we should gain something from the profit of our work. We should profit by it. Things that don't count. Things that are null. Things that are vain. And things that yield absolutely no results. So you have like in one sense, here's what should happen. We should see profit and gain from doing these sorts of things or living in a particular manner. This should count or matter. Here's what should result from this work. And then he provides the vain antithesis, right? Which is, uh, it doesn't count and matter. It's completely null. As a matter of fact, it's vain. And that yields absolutely no result, even though that should be the intended end. There should be part. There should be portion. There should be reward. These are all Hebrew words that he uses. I am not uh, firm in Hebrew, so I'll just go ahead and forego pronouncing them for right now. Um, But there should be part and portions that we should expect from our life. A result of our work. Okay, A reward. A good. A profit an advantage. Which he contrasts with things like shadow, wind, and affliction. So what things we do, part and portion, rewards, goods, profits and advantages... Are directly contrasted with shadow, wind, affliction, and evil in the world. Why would he say that? Well, for those students who are familiar with Genesis chapter 1, how does Genesis chapter 1 begin? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And then God said, Let there be light and God creates everything. And at the end of this created order as he speaks all things into existence, from nothing to something, he does it directly out of his wisdom and imagination, if you could put it that way. Brutally speaking, he speaks it directly into existence, something that was not comes into being. What does it say about God? What does it say exactly about God? We know of other accounts like the Babylonian Enuma Elish, which talks about gods at war, Theomachy, right? This idea that gods are at war and that somehow the product of what we are today is a result of those wars. But interesting enough, in most creation accounts, if not all of them, I believe, these gods are a part of the created order. What is being said here is a lot different. What Moses is representing in Genesis is a lot different. It suggests that God is transcendent. God is beyond the created order. He is outside of it. It is his, and he spoke it into order. And then he says at the very end of it, he describes it in a particular way. He says, um, at the end of it, he says, uh, "And God saw that everything that He had made, behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, on the sixth day. It is very good. The created order is a moral fabric. God created it a particular way for a purpose, and it is very good." We live within the moral fabric of the Creator's creation. And to the chagrin of some, we are His creatures, as he describes in Genesis 1.26. Is anyone struggling with the idea that you are God's creature? Some do, as we found out this morning. This idea of this determined will that they get to dictate and tell God what to do. They get to be God's directors. Why do people struggle with that? Well, let's just look at Genesis chapter 3. And if you don't mind, I'm just going to read it in its entirety. so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delightful to the eyes and that the tree was the desire to desire to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and also gave it to some, some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And in the eyes of the both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit and I ate. Then the Lord said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock And above all the beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And then to Adam he said, Because I have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree, of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat the bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground on which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed two cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So why do we... Pick up that concept. Well, I believe this is exactly what Solomon is trying to express in Ecclesiastes. He's trying to demonstrate what this really looks like through a magnifying glass. I think he's trying to express to us God is the Creator and we are His creatures and something is afoul. Something's really bad's happened. Something's not right. All of life's pursuits seem to be meaningless and vain. Why? Because, in the end of all, the third theme you'll find throughout the throughout Ecclesiastes is what? Death. So what do we have? Every bit of our days into the sun are vain and meaningless. Vanity rules, rules of the day, and then we die. Man, why even do anything? Why place any effort in? Paul says this in romans eight eighteen through twenty three he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation awaits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruit of the Spirit groan inwardly as we eagerly await for adoptions of sons, the redemption of our bodies. I believe that is exactly what Job was groaning. Wait a minute, Lord, I walked with you in uprightness. Job is even described as a righteous man. He was doing the right thing. He was a leader in the city. He had amassed for himself incredible wealth. He had a huge family great tracts of land. And what happened? Everything gets stripped. Completely stripped away. And his life was brought to a ruin. And what did he say? Naked I've come into the world and naked shall I return. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Is that our response typically? (laughs) No, it's not, right? We get a few things stripped. Like we have to wait a little longer at a stoplight and we're struggling, right? We're like, oh man, I know I feel that way sometimes. You get that slow person on the freeway in the fast lane, right? As you're going along and You feel like, I'm going to be so late. I'm going to be like 10 minutes early instead of 15 like I really wanted to be. you get a hole torn in your sock like I go through my socks because my kids wear all my socks. Right? I just want my pair of socks that fit me and don't have holes in them. And my life is in shambles now. Blessed be the name of the Lord. No, that's... You know what I mean? That's typically... We don't respond like Job when everything gets stripped. You lose all your family members. Your life... Is crushed, your wealth is stripped away, and uh, you lose everything, and then you're, now you're, your body's falling apart. Typically, we don't respond like Job. Naked I came into the world, naked I shall return. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Well, what kind of vantage point did Job have in order to say such a thing? It's a question that I'm sure you've asked. I know I've asked that. I remember reading one of the first passages that I ever memorized in James. Count it all joy when you fall into the various trials. Knowing the testing of your faith will produce patience, but let that patience have perfect work that you lack nothing. Any anyone who lacks, let him ask of God who gives wisdom liberally without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, for he who doubts is like one cast to and fro for every wind and wave of the sea. Let him not expect he'll receive anything from the Lord. Right? We're to count it all joy when we fall into various trials. Man, that's typically not the response. Right? That's typically not the way we engage a difficult trial. Like, you know, we didn't get the job we were hoping for. Man, that would have been a really sweet job. Would have paid really well. That would have been a huge blessing for my family. Stripped. Done. Didn't get it. Or, I'm getting paid really well. Doing awesome. I'm a weeks away from closing on a house. It's a week before Christmas and my my job gets taken from me. I get fired for no good reason. That happened to me. A week before Christmas. A week before closing on apps. You have hopes and dreams about maybe the future and the way this might look with your spouse. You've amassed and planned your whole life around, here's what our future is going to look like. When we get to that retirement, right? The sweet nest egg that we built up for ourselves. And then what happens? Your spouse dies. Dang it. Your whole plans are stripped away before your very eyes. We know people who that's happened to. Happened to my mother-in-law. It was very sad. We know people who desire to have children. Plan their, their whole hopes are planned around having of this child, right? They even go and paint the room. Decorate it all. And then what ends up happening? Miscarriage. Oh, Lord, why would you do such a thing to me? Right? We cry out to God. That is why I chose Psalm 102. Think about what the Psalter was going through at that very time. How could you do such a thing? Wait a minute, Lord. I thought you gave promises to us and to me, of who I would be and what You're going to do through me. And look at me. Running from my life. People hate me. I'm, you know, Everything's falling around me. It's, everything's falling apart all around me. And I thought You were going to do this. What in the world, Lord? I believe that's exactly why Ecclesiastes was written. For our benefit and our edification and our understanding of that very thing. Let's take a look real quickly at an overall structure. And by the way, um, there is no consensus on the structure, uh, true consensus of the structure of Ecclesiastes because there's so much debate surrounding who wrote it, how many authors wrote it, when it was written, for what purpose and why, and maybe there was none. Maybe it was just kind of a hodgepodge collection uh, of things. Maybe there's some things that are totally uh, contradictory in one part and being corrected in other parts. Yes, go do the research for yourself, you'll discover Um, there's very little consensus around the book of Ecclesiastes, which I think is hilarious. Someone sits down and reads it multiple times, which may I encourage you to do so. It takes about an hour. As we go through this together, read it every week. Set set aside a time and just sit down in one sitting. I know it's hard for some of you. Just sit down, Eric, if you're watching Cellaritis, just read it in one week. Just, Just read it for me. Just do it. Sit down, read it. He doesn't like to read much. That's why we make fun of him. and He loves us for doing it, by the way. Just an encouragement to you, bro. Uh, so sit down and read it. One hour or so. It's a very fast read. small, 12 chapters. Read it in its entirety. And what you will discover, it is, is definitely a, a singular argument. It's a thought that is presented from the beginning in this opening. I believe this is the opening of it. I think I've read Ecclesiastes more than any other book of the Bible. Because I've turned to it in times of despair so many times, and I've experienced so much despair in my life. There are times where I thought, man, this is, man, this is it. You know, Suicidal thoughts cross your mind. Things when you feel like, no, there's no way anything could come good out of this. Struggles are overwhelming to, to me. I'm turning to Ecclesiastes. Why? Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. That's right. All is vanity. I need to keep remembering that. So, what do I think? How do I think the book is structured? Well, I just happen to agree with Doug Wilson. <laughs> yep, I brought him up. There it is. I have, I've listened to multiple sermon series on Ecclesiastes. I've read it myself dozens and dozens of times. I looked up structures for this book and tried to find um, the best way to kind of lay it out. And interesting enough, uh, which I, this is why I so appreciate having the, the time to be able to take through this, I, I, I have Canon Press. I encourage you guys to get it. It's a wonderful uh, um, resource, by the way. Tons of resources on there. I've listened to multiple books while I'm at work. Uh, just have that opportunity to do so. I highly encourage you to do it. Um, in there, Doug Wilson has a, a, a series on Ecclesiastes. I encourage you to go check that out as we work through this together. A fantastic series, as a matter of fact. Um, been very blessed by listening to it. But he provides what he says he believes the structure is. And so I, I'm in total alignment with this. But I'd love for those who are reading this text together with us as we kind of go through along this book study through the next few weeks together, um, if you think maybe there's a better way to organize this book, uh, there's another way that maybe we could look at it. Please, please let me know. I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Uh, But he he says that uh, chapters uh, one through two is one section. And this, in chapters one through two, deals with really creaturely limitations. Think of creaturely limitations. And what are those... Creaturely limitations uh, being exploited here or being expressed. It's really man is powerless to prescribe meaning or enjoy anything. So in and of ourselves, we're incapable of ascribing or imputing meaning into anything or enjoying anything. Now, interesting enough, some might say, well, wait a minute. I mean, I know. I can enjoy some stuff, man. I love a solid spaghetti dinner with that sweet bread. Mmm, I enjoy that. And so do unbelievers. What do you mean by that? No, no, no. It's the meaningfulness of that spaghetti dinner and the joy in the expression of experiencing it together with your family. There's more to just simply in a brief moment enjoying something by taste and really actually experiencing true depth of meaning and joy in anything. You're incapable of ascribing meaning to that spaghetti dinner, to that time with your family, or anything for that matter under the sun. Think about what he says in Ecclesiastes 1.8-9. He says, all things are full of weariness, a man cannot utter it, the eye cannot be satisfied with seeing, nor ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been is done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Does that mean that like there's nothing new been created, like no technological advancements or anything like that? That's not what he's talking about. I like uh, I like what Doug says. He says all technology has done is given us the capacity to descend faster and more efficiently, <laughs> <laughs> uh, to give us the ability to, to uh, gossip faster. In the sense, like usually we had to walk over our neighbor's house, and then um, now we could just do it on the internet with someone across the world and instantaneously. Right? Um, I, I like that. I appreciate that, that that analogy. Think about that. Really, he's not. What he's trying to tell you is that. Man's intention from the garden, in our exile from the garden, has not changed whatsoever. The same temptation that Adam and Eve faced to have the knowledge of good and evil, and when it means have the knowledge of good and evil, really is to impute meaning and value in things aside from the way God has done it. They want to be God in their own image. They want to be the creators of meaning and values. Is that not exactly what we see inherent today in our culture, in our own lives? Uh, God, I know you've said this. And then the famous word, but, but, this. I know you revealed this into your word, your word, you, you, very carefully. However, this. God, I know you said you work out all things together for your good pleasure. Uh, however, this. I would like to know this. Right? I want meaning on my time. I want to live my best life now kind of attitude. I want to know what's going on in your mind, Lord. Right? And how does he conclude in Ecclesiastes 2, 24 through twenty-five? He says, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This is also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Apart from God who can eat, and who can have enjoyment. When I first read that, that stood out so powerfully to me. Wait a second. Are you saying, apart from God, someone truly cannot have enjoyment or joy at all? Well, later he says he's the one that actually gives the power for us to enjoy anything. And he uses it in contrast of amassing wealth. So think about creaturely limitations. We have a tendency, and let me say this. I'll put this out there right now. Uh, and, and you know, agree, feel free to challenge me after the sermon today. We have a love feast afterwards, hang out afterwards, we'll walk through this together. But I believe that all sin in some way, shape, or form is located in the fall, but to the extent that we try to ascribe meaning to something that God has not ascribed meaning to. We say, no God, I don't like your value. Like for instance, there's going to be some attack on the image na- image-bearing nature of man. Some attack there. Why? Because God has ascribed an imputed value into us. God has valued us a particular way. And He has commanded us, by virtue of being an image-bearer, to value things a particular way. Right? I believe that any kind of ascribing of meaning and value is some attack on the image-bearing nature. It's an attack on who we are or what we are, male and female. It's an attack on relationship structures. The covenant of marriage, this idea of how these relationship structures were prescribed to work. And then it's an attack on how we are to steward and govern creation. I think all sin is somehow relevant to that. And it all stems from the 10th commandment, covetousness. We desire things to be a certain way, the way we want them, the way we want to make them. And so we begin to value, change the valuation system of those things. We want to see society steward and governed according to that value. And what ends up happening is God does not give anyone the power to enjoy their own dictation and determination of that value in His created order, which He made very good, and it all results in meaninglessness. Why? Because in the end, death comes to all. Okay, you could do that as much as you want. You live in a God-rigged world. God has made it in a particular way, to quote Andrew Sandlin. It's God-rigged. It's very good. You've been made... As an image bearer of God, you're His creature, no matter how much you like that or not. And as a relationship, you have a particular relationship with God. You are made for a particular purpose and end. And this relationship structure, this marriage covenant, as as uh, described in Genesis chapter two, and the stewardship of His created order and His governance of His created order has to look a particular way. And if you're not God fearing in this regard, if you don't honor your creator in this regard, everything will be meaningless. Everything will be vain. It will be chasing after the wind. And in the end, you'll discover that when you die, when you return to the dust, which leads us to the second division. Chapters three through five deals with the creator's sovereignty over all things. Here's the creator. Genesis chapter one. And you'll notice this is a a structure, a template, really for the way we should be preaching the Gospel. Okay, We have a Creator, and we're creatures. God's prescribed things in a particular way. He is outside of the created order. He is not part of it. And He is sovereign over all of His creation. Everything is the Creator's. Let's turn to Colossians chapter 1. You knew I was going to do it, Jonathan. You knew I was going there. Can't resist. I want you to think about the way Paul talks about Jesus in Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is the the, uh, head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God is pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile himself to all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is our Savior, the second person of the triune Godhead, who is the one who created everything and ordered everything. So everything is for him, to him, by him, through him. right? And his will is beyond the limited understanding and comprehension of the creature. So what you'll find all throughout uh, chapters 3 and 5 is this challenge of, but wait a minute, why is this happening? I demand to know why. What's going on here? And what's wrong with that when the creature demands to know the will of God and then to instruct him? What does Paul say in Romans 11, 33-36? How does he conclude his understanding of the creator-creature relationship and our posture towards God? Oh, the depth and the riches of wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. Amen. Interesting enough, exactly how Job concludes. So after, you know, 30 some odd chapters in Job, I think it's 37, if I'm not mistaken, Uh, In chapter 37, Elihu stands up and says, hey, listen guys, I perceive perceive that not always age brings forth wisdom. You may have the gray hairs, you may be older, but you're definitely not wiser. Uh, The way you've been instructing Job is out of place. It's misplaced. And what you'll note is that God, when He responds to Job, does not correct Elihu. He says, you guys are totally missing it. There's something else here that we're missing. This is the Jeremy paraphrase version. right? And then God steps in And provides correction. And how does God provide correction? What does he say about counsel? What kind of counsel is this? Who would counsel the Lord? That's what Paul says. Who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor? You stand back there for a minute and I'm going to question you. Whoa, Lord, this dude's blown out. Guy's stripped of everything. You should know better, man. Be a little more sensitive, right? No, no, no. Stand back. I'm going to, you stand up like a man right now. Scourge yourself and prepare yourself to answer some questions. And how does God answer him? What does He ask him? How does He challenge him? Where were you? And He proceeds forth to talk about how He created things, and He gives pretty specific details in how He created things. And what is He challenging Job in that? In, in saying those things, what is He challenging him with? Are you the creator? Do you even know? Does it should He has it even crossed your mind to consider these things? No, then why are you questioning me? What ultimately is Job was Job's sin in the book of Job? Job questioned the character of God. As though everything that Job was going through, did he really believe that naked he would return, right? But he was ultimately blessed be the name of the Lord. He lost sight of blessed be the name of the Lord, I believe, toward the end of the book. And he started questioning God's character. Like, why would God ever do such a thing to me? Creator's sovereignty he is sovereign over all things and His will is beyond limited understanding and comprehension of the creature. Unless you understand first and foremost that you have a creator, you are a creature, and his will is beyond your scrutiny, you will find that your life will be a path of meaninglessness. That's all it'll be. You'll find no joy in it. As a matter of fact, it'll be like sawdust in your mouth. Which, are, which is the kind of description that, that uh, Solomon provides later in his exploits. Okay? The third break uh, in the book is chapter 6 through 8, um, ending it at, at verse 15, right before the end of chapter 8. So, chapter 6 through 8. God actually controls and, pa- and empowers joy, which is a really fascinating concept when you think about it. We're creatures, we have a creator, he is sovereign over all things, and he's the one in this vain existence where vain vanity rules that empowers us to even enjoy this vanity. That both unbeliever and believer experience vanity. We all do. We all go through it. Everybody goes through the mundane, right? Uh, we think about, if anybody's seen a Groundhog's Day, the movie, right? The movie is about a man who wakes up every day and the day starts the same way. It's Groundhog's Day. I was talking to my kiddos on the way to school one day, and I'm like, don't you guys feel like that? Like, oh man, here we are another day. My youngest son likes to play the same music on the way to school. We let him be the DJ sometimes on the way. And, uh... What happens? Jace just likes his, he has his track, man. He just wants to listen to his, and it's the same one. And so like we did it three days in a row. I'm like, look at that. Perfect example, right, of what it means to be vanity. The the same thing over and over and over. He loves it though. It's awesome. God has given to him the power to enjoy the uh, repetitive, the inscrutable, repetitive nature of his song tracks, right? Um, But think about it. We experience that. We, we experience that in life. It's like, oh, I got to wake up and I got to do schoolwork every day and I'm going to go from this to the next and this to the next, right? I got to do my work. Uh, listen, I am a professional brewer, really a cellarman by trade. Okay. And I'm going to tell you this right now. One thing that people hate about the industry, they come into it and they think all we do is hang out and drink beer and talk about beer all day. We kind of do some of that. But that's not the totality of the work. You know what? A lot of, uh, you know, ninety percent of, of the brewing industry's work is cleaning and organizing. A lots of cleaning and a lots of organizing. I mean, uh, you get to the point where it becomes so repetitive. You could, like, you think about it and you could do it in your sleep because you've done it hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. The goal in doing so is to produce a great product consistently. You can't produce a great product consistently unless what? You have a system and a process that you have to follow. But what can happen over time? Well, that can get real boring real quick. And you start to question the uh, your existence and the value of your existence while you keep doing this vain thing over and over and over again throughout your whole life. You wake up every day, you have your coffee, you do your breakfast, and you go to take the kids to school and you go, go do your work, right? Over and over and over again, you do the same thing. Farmers experience that, Dr. Willie. Don't they? They wake up. It's this particular season, we go do this, we prep for this season, we have to close out this season, we have to go do that, we have to seed time, and then we have harvest, and, then we have, and it's the same thing. And it's a lot of repetitive work. You start to question your existence. Why am I doing this? I could be building up sweet storehouses of grains and wonderful fruits and foods, only what? I'm gonna, I could die tomorrow, right? I could work super hard and fall out of the back of a truck and have to be crippled for a few months only to have my children pick up slack for me, which they don't really do that well, they complain a lot. Right? Right? And that's tough work. And then you start to wonder, why did I get myself into this? Why do I even live on the farm anymore? Why do I do these things? Some of you are in the military. You go and you do your mundane projects every day. Like you have to you know, cross people across the cross. Like, why do I do this? Why do I have to wake up every morning and do this really lame, dumb work that doesn't really... Actually, was not even a part of my job in the first place when I got hired into the military. Right? Anybody been in the military knows that. Man, I got hired for this, but I'm doing this. And it seems really meaningless. And I keep doing this thing over and over. Why in the heck am I here? I should be going doing something else to find what? More meaning in my life. I hired a front desk. I was a club manager of a 24-hour fitness when we first moved out here. And I can't tell you how many times I heard uh, from people who I hired either for the kids club or the front desk, you know, the guys who scan people in. And some people got so lazy, right? Did you hear that they just put the scanner up on the thing and they didn't even pay attention anymore. They didn't say hi to anybody, nothing. And we hated that, right? Because we wanted to be warm and welcoming. And here's the front desk person, right? After like two or three weeks, I don't know what it is with this generation. I guess every generation says that about the next generation, right? But I don't know what it is about this generation. They just don't like to work. Work is tough for them. And being kind to people and actually communicating to people is super tough for them. So you come up to them and you're like, man, bro, take the scanner down. Why don't you personally scan them and welcome them into the club? Say hi to them. And after a few weeks of doing that, you know, at first they're all bubbly and they're like super warm and welcoming. Hi, welcome to the club. Good to see you by the first name, right? And then they walk in and they're like, yes, yes. And then three weeks later, they're like, I'm contemplating my life. never really saw myself in this position. You know, I don't really know if this is bringing a lot of meaning and value to my life. And you're like, how about you do a good job? Say hi to people when they walk in the door and stop caring about the station you have in this club or in your life at all. You're 18. You don't know anything yet. (laughs) How about you start here and work your way up and start growing and understanding that this is a part of growing and learning and developing your career. And by the way, uh, the career summary of your life is not what you're doing right now uh, behind the front desk. A career is the totality of what you've done in your life. This is a part of that. Get to work. Let's go. I have a funny story of a guy who just didn't like washing kegs at Trinity when I worked there. He just didn't like doing it. And I'm like, well, how about you keep washing kegs? And when you learn how to do that, you'll be able to wash this bigger one with just more parts on it. And then when you understand how to wash this bigger one with more parts on it, you'll be able to do this bigger one with more parts on it. And you'll be able to do this complex thing like move the beer from here to here. And then you'll be able to move it from here to a package like a can or another keg. But you can't even be trusted. You can't even make a clean keg clean. You know, or you can't make a dirty keg clean then you can't be trusted with these bigger tanks and so on and so forth. Let alone brew. Bro, have you even brewed a day in your life? Right? And they're like, Ugh, I thought it was more than this. I don't know if I like this or not. Right? But what what are these people doing? They tend to search for meaning in things, in relationships, in identities, in work, right? Or play or hobbies or whatever it might be. Think about it. In spirituality, this vertical thing is broken they have a broken relationship with god so what do they do try to find meaning of in their existence and some other spiritual outlet and their relationships are all broken they're screaming at you on the freeway cutting you off kind of people driving too slow in the fast lane kind of people because they want to be the boss of the fast lane you know they're upset every day they come into work you work with people those who are still working and not retired you work with people right now guarantee you are just like that. They walk in miserable every single day and never imagine that this is what their life would be like. And then there are people who come to work and go, I love what I do. This may not be the funnest thing all the time, you know, but man, I'm really blessed that I have this job. I'm blessed that I'm able to provide for my family. I love spending time and being with my family. I'm very blessed. There's a big difference and it's a matter of perspective. So how does Solomon conclude this? He says, behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting Ecclesiastes 5.18-20. Just think about that. You're a creature. You have limitations. You can't impute meaning into anything. It's God that must give you the power to do so. If you try to do that, you'll find that all of vanity under the sun, this repetition, this inscrutable repetition, these things you keep doing over and over and over again all throughout your life will ultimately end up being vain and meaninglessness. And you'll have no power to enjoy it. And it's the sovereign creator who has appointed this for you. And then finally, in the end, chapter 8, 16, verses 16 through 12, 14, is conflicts resolved. Dealing with issues that arise and arguments that arise out of this sort of understanding. How does he end it? He says, we need to have a proper perspective. And in having this proper perspective, it will change everything about the way we understand this vanity, this meaninglessness, or apparent. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes twelve thirteen through fourteen. He says, "The end of the matter, uh, all has been heard. This is the end of the matter. All, all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil." And so, with that, that concludes sort of the overview uh, of the book. Uh, My hope and prayer is that when we work through this, that as we dive into more examples of what that looks like, uh, that the apologetic principle behind it is weighty and that you recognize that when you are talking with unbelievers around you, not only have you examined your own life in light of these things, but when you look at an unbeliever who is miserable in their life, they are miserable people. You know that. It's impossible. They can try to fake the funk all they want. They live in God's very good world. They're His image bearers. They're trying to define meaning for themselves. They're trying to impute value in things beyond what God has prescribed. They want to be God. They want to possess wisdom of their own right. And in in doing so, it ends in nothing but meaninglessness. And you could say, by the way, I know know you know this, you believe this, everything that you are doing right now is vain. Why? Because in the end of it all, you're going to die. And what does it say about death? It's appointed for man to die and face the judgment of God. God will bring all things into an account, whether visible or invisible, behind closed doors or done. And so that is the basic structure of the book. And next week we'll discuss more on the authorship and the audience and how to proper format these things and better understand them in light of the examples that he's given. So let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for Ecclesiastes. Thank you for this wisdom that you've given, which should be recognized as the wisest man ever in the world to live, because you endowed him with that wisdom. He went into these circumstances with eyes wide open, knowing what he was doing. It wasn't done in darkness, but it was done in the light. I pray that as we walk through these examples together, in the weeks to come, that we come to recognize the errors in our own hearts. Areas where we think and might even despair in the the vanity of our own lives. That we come to hate the vanity instead of having the power to enjoy it. For those who are struggling with that today, I pray they cry out and come to recognize that it is an issue in their relationship with you that is giving them a perspective of despair. Which typically leads people down a very dark path. At the end of Proverbs 8 it says that all who hate wisdom love death. And that is the truth of what is expressed in Ecclesiastes. Praise is a blessing to my brothers and sisters today. I pray you bless in Jesus' name. Amen.